Now we will read Psalm 123. It's on page 517 of the Red Bibles in the front of the pew there. So I'll give everybody a chance to get to that. A song of ascent. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. Bless you. For we have had more than enough contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn who were at ease, of the contempt of the proud. The word of the Lord. All right, we are in Psalm 123. So if you have a Bible or a phone still open to that, take a look at that. That's where we're going to be this morning. To get us into this conversation, though, I want to begin with this. There's a, a recent uh, ad campaign started by Mercedes, came out a couple of months ago, and the title of the campaign is Grow Up. Grow Up. The campaign is built around this idea that there are rules, scripts, if you will, that society gives us about what it means to grow up, about what it means to become a fully functioning, mature Adult. These are rules like settle down, get a job, start a family, a variety of other things. And the way this campaign works, it's a series of short films. They're about four to five minutes long, and each one is an exploration of one of those rules, one of those themes. And what they're trying to do is show us that life is way messier than these rules, than these scripts that we are given. It's not quite that easy to just get a job, settle down, start a family, whatever those things might be. In one film, we see an older man uh, finally work up the courage to quit his job, and then he attempts to reconcile with his estranged son. In another film, we see a man try to pick up the pieces of his life after his wife leaves him. And in yet another, there's, there are two parents who are trying to figure out how to reconcile the fact that they, the freedom and just the kind of life that they live before this child arrives is no longer possible. Now the campaign has gotten a lot of positive critical feedback for its grittiness, for its portrayal of reality, its honest uh, reflection of modern life and modern values. And I don't know if you've had the opportunity to see any of these, but it, it, it's fascinating to me. For a couple different reasons. One is that for a long time, decades in our, in our culture here in America, advertising and marketing has been aspirational, almost by definition. It's this idea of buy our product and somehow things will be better. Sometimes those aspirations are about efficiency. Buy our product, your life will get easier. Sometimes it's about pleasure, buy our product and you'll have more fun, be more sexually attractive, whatever those things are, the pleasure of your life will increase through this product. Sometimes those aspirations are about ideals, 
buy this product if you want to be a certain kind of person. If you want to be cool or cutting edge, you'll buy these things. Now, what is interesting, fascinating to me about this Mercedes campaign is that it's what I would call post-aspirational. Trademark Steve Boutry, 2017. (laughs) In these these films, there is no promise that your life will get better or easier or that you will be a cooler, more awesome person by owning a Mercedes. Now, all of us, whether we're Christian or not, hopefully a goal in life is to grow up and to mature. But again, what, what, what blows me away about these ads is that they're selling us, what they are selling, in fact, is the, the truth that no one knows what that means anymore. Now, at the end of each of these films, after you kind of submerse yourself in what can be, quite frankly, hard to watch, it can be a difficult four or five minutes, at the end of each film, they all end with one word, Drive. That, that's the answer. And the message is this. Life is messy and complicated and hard and all the rules that we're given, all the scripts that we're told to live by, they don't work for us anymore. Nobody knows what it means to grow up. So just drive. <laughs> Post-aspirational. Marshall McLuhan is a professor who foresaw prophetically the impact that media would have on our culture, and he's famous for saying the medium is the message. You probably heard that in some sociology class at some point. He also said this, we become what we behold. We become what we behold. What we spend our time looking towards, aspiring to, gazing at, worshiping, shapes us. So ultimately, what's fascinating to me about this shift in our culture is that we have nothing to look towards. What does that say about what we will become? And it begs the question, what do you behold? What are you gazing at? This is how our psalm begins. The psalmist understands all of this. Look at verse 1 again. To you... I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Now, if you've been around for the psalm series, you may remember, or this may remind you of Psalm 121. Okay, just a a couple psalms before this. It begins in a very similar way, right? I lift up my eyes to the hills, from where does my help come? And if you remember that conversation, we talked a lot about how in, in this time, when these psalms were written and sung, looking to the hills was a fairly common practice. Hills were spiritual places. There was all kinds of worship of different gods going on on top of hills. And so to look to a hill was a very common practice. And that psalm lays out the case, makes the case that going to other hills is a waste of time. There's only one place you can really find help. And that's through Yahweh, the the creator of the hills, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Now, two psalms later, not a question anymore. This is simply a statement. To you, I lift my eyes. And remember that these psalms, Psalm 120 to 134, what we now have in our Bibles as the Psalms of Ascents, 
were songs sung by Hebrew pilgrims as they made their way to Jerusalem for one of the three major festivals of the year. Good Hebrew would have done this three times for Pentecost, Passover, and Tabernacles. They were journeying to Jerusalem to celebrate and to worship. Now, over the course of the, the year, there'd be, you know, the majority of their time would be spent at home, not at a festival, celebrating and worshiping together. And during those times, there would have been a variety of forces, just as in our world and culture, there are a variety of forces competing for our time and attention. They had economic pressures, just like we do. They had to work hard to put food on the table. Those jobs took up a lot of their life. There were families to be raised, extended families to be cared for. There were false gods and alternative forms of worship. Again, these hills that were tempting them and enticing them. And so these pilgrimages were a time to recalibrate. Their eyes may have been tuned, drawn in some other direction. They may have been beholding something other than Yahweh. And so this journey and these songs force their eyes back to the one true God. This brings us back to a theme that we've seen all throughout this series. That's the theme of intentionality. If we're not careful, our eyes drift. We start looking at other things. Look, about, look at just about anything that comes across our path. And so we need these moments where we intentionally set our eyes on God. These moments to recalibrate. Some of us do this on a daily basis. Maybe it's through uh, spiritual disciplines like reading scripture and prayer. These recalibration moments can happen for us in a home group where we open the, the word together and, and talk about what it means and how it applies to our lives and do it in community with each other. It can happen through a conversation with a good friend or a mentor, somebody who can speak truth into your life. And certainly, a recalibration moment should be here on Sunday morning as we gather for worship and communion and to hear the word taught and to be together. Recalibration moments are important because we become what we behold. What are you looking at? What are you beholding? Now, verse 1 is interesting because it speaks of God in a very general way. God's not named here in, in any kind of personal way. But a couple of key observations right here at the start. The first is this. These are both about the direction of our attention. Our attention here is upward. Which is to say beyond the self. And even to a degree beyond the community that we're with. <clears throat> Many of us, we spend time looking inward. Nothing wrong with that. Self-examination is good. This is the journey that Mercedes invites us to take. This inward journey. Some of us, we look to others, to our immediate surroundings. Again, that's not necessarily a bad thing either. It's good to be in tune and formed by the relationships around us, but those tend to be our, our automatic default settings, to look to ourselves or to look to others, but we must look up. The attention here in verse 1 is upward. 
I think we still have a sense of the importance of this, right? We ask ourselves or we ask each other these kinds of questions. Who do you look up to? Who do you admire? For some of us, it may be parents or a spouse. Maybe it's someone in our, our field or our career who's farther ahead of us. Maybe it's Steph Curry. The guy can play golf and basketball. It's amazing. <laughs> Who do you look up to? Who do you admire? Again, we become who we behold. Yahweh, the psalm makes clear, is a God who must be looked up to. So the attention is upward. Second, the attention is on the throne. Now, a throne is a a symbol, a reality of power and authority. And again, here's a reminder that ultimate authority, the ultimate authority in our lives is not ourselves, not our peers. It is God, the one who is enthroned in heaven. If you've been around the last couple of weeks as we've been making our way through Mark and our Mark study, this issue of authority keeps coming up again and again and again. Jesus' authority questioned by the religious leaders of that time. Where, where the stuff that you're teaching, where does it come from? Who are you to say this? And over and over we see Jesus responding, proving himself to be not just an authority, not just a good teacher or a wise man or someone with clever answers to tricky questions, but the authority. And as the New Testament writers make clear later on, the authority over all things. These claims are going to get him killed. Spoiler alert. (laughs) But as Albert has pointed out again and again, we struggle with submitting to an authority, with acknowledging an authority outside of ourselves. This psalm, though, shows that there is an authority And then as we make our way here through these last couple of verses, that this authority is worth submitting to. There is no better master we can serve. Look at verse 2. Behold, as the eyes of the servants, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Here's more words and analogies that we are not super excited about, (laughs) right? Servant to master, maidservant to mistress, us to the Lord our God. But this relationship is so important. It's very important that we have this image in our minds, helping give us a, a correct understanding of ourselves and of God. In my teaching, I bring us back often to this biblical idea, this word shalom, this very rich biblical term having to do with the way that God intended the world to function best. Shalom, the way that God created the world when he looks at his creation and calls it good, this is what he's talking about. Uh, 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 A web of right relationships in multiple directions. God at the top, mankind the rest of creation. That's a really simple way of explaining it, but it's so important because right relationship to God automatically places us in submission to him. This is not, Psalm 123 is not just a nice little metaphor. This uh, being a servant is central to our identity. 
This is who we are. This is who we were created to be. God is our master. We are his servants. And even though we may not uh, be really excited about this metaphor, this is actually the beginning to the answer of the malaise of our post-aspirational culture. Because it forces us out of the center of the action. When we do that, when we put ourselves on the throne, we begin to lose the truth of our purpose, our destiny. We become what we behold. If we behold ourselves, we become our own masters. We become enslaved to ourselves. But our true, original, intended purpose was and is to serve God. To have this posture of servant is the only way to begin to make sense of our lives. Now look at the end of verse 2. We're told that these pilgrims are looking to God until he has mercy upon them. This theme of mercy continues in the next couple of verses. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Talked a little bit earlier about some of the pressures that these pilgrims would have faced back home outside of the festival times. Here's an example of one of those pressures. One of the reasons they needed these recalibration moments is because they had become focused on the contempt and the scorn that they were experiencing. Now, we're not given a, a lot of explanation here about what, what is going on, what this contempt is, who it's coming from. All we know is it's from those who are proud and who are taking life easy. A very similar phrase shows up in the book of Amos. Amos says this, Woe to those who are at ease. There's that phrase. In Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. That sounds a lot like one of these pilgrimages to Jerusalem. And so maybe we can conclude that there was some exploitation happening during these seasons. You get the sense there are rich, powerful people who are taking advantage of these moments, these yearly moments in the calendar to fatten their wallets. Beyond that, we don't know a whole lot about what this contempt is, why they are experiencing it, but we, what we are told is that the pilgrims who sang this song made the choice, the wise choice of looking to Yahweh for help and specifically for mercy. Again, connecting us back to Psalm 121. Where do we go for help? We go to Yahweh. One commentator says it this way. I love this phrase. This psalm prays us from oppression to freedom. But it's freedom through serving a better master. Let me say that again. Psalm 123 prays us from oppression to freedom, but it's freedom through serving a better master. Now, just a, a quick side note, parenthetical statement here. If you are feeling burned out or burdened by your service inside or outside the church, 
It may be because you've overextended yourself or haven't said no enough or, or whatever, but it may also be because you are serving the wrong master. You're serving yourself, you're trying to make someone else happy, you're trying to justify yourself. But service to God leads to freedom. Now, this psalm can make it sound like we need to do something here to earn God's mercy. It can make it sound like if you're having some trouble in your life, just look to God for a moment and he'll take it away. Sort of a jump through this hoop theology. But take a closer look. That's not what is going on here at all. Looking at the whole of Scripture, Scripture again and again makes it clear that we can never work hard enough to earn God's approval, to earn God's mercy. Serving is not about scoring God points or church points. To the text itself, notice the word here is servant, not slave. And the picture here is very positive. Okay, this is not a, a look, a turning the eyes out of suspicion or dread or resentment or fear. There's clearly a, a connection, a relationship that's being described between the servant and the master. The maidservant and the mistress. The look is one of gladness, awe, dependence, submissiveness, rooted in trust. The servant knows that his or her life is safe in the governance of the master. I can go here to find mercy. Mercy is unconditional regard for. It's love that is completely gratuitous. Not earned in any way. The master gives himself over to the well-being of the servant. And this brings us right to the heart of the gospel. Burtis referred to this in his story. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The master becomes a servant. Think about that for a moment. Now, God did not become a servant so that we could order him around. God became a servant so that we could join him in his mission of redemption, the restoration of shalom. This is a beautiful invitation to receive his mercy first, to accept that we are not at the center of the action. We are not the authority. We are not the master. And then from that receiving of mercy, we respond in gratitude, in submission, and in service. Now today, you may have noticed this as you came in this morning, but today and next week, we're hosting our ministry fair where we're going to highlight some of the teams that, that uh, help make what happens here on Sunday mornings possible. I want to say a couple things about that. First of all, this is not uh, an attempt to guilt you into signing up, <laughs> okay? We have, uh, I think anyway, we've created some, some good systems that allow you to kind of come in and come out of of serving on teams and we work with your schedule, you're not signing your life away or anything like that. And I think for the most part, our teams are in a good place. So this is not really about, hey, we have a bunch of spots 
we need to fill. This really, truly is an invitation. Do you want to be a part of what God is doing here in this community? In and through this community. Do you want to join God's mission? The restoration of shalom as it's being expressed here at Regen. Do you want to help make it possible for more and more people to experience God's mercy? That is what it's about. It's not about guilt or filling a hole on some roster sheet somewhere. Jesus himself says it this way, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Again, if, if the idea of serving is burdensome to you, it's because you've taken up the wrong yoke. You are serving the wrong master. Your eyes are looking somewhere else. Because serving is the only possible response to receiving God's mercy. Now, that doesn't mean you need to serve coffee at Regen on Sunday mornings. But if you are not adopting that posture, if you are not serving in some capacity somewhere, you are not living out of this identity. And again, I think you have to ask the question, who, who is your master? What are you beholding? Now, here is the amazing good news of Jesus. Jesus' own words from the Gospel of John. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Listen to this. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Just listen to that. Let that sink in for a moment. The king, the creator of the universe who sits on the throne at the center of all of the action of our world, who the only rightful response to to seeing this is to fall down on our knees in submission says, hey friend, that's unbelievably good news. What Mercedes got right in its Grow Up campaign is that there really, there, there is this angst that many people feel. I feel it. These questions, what is the point? What is the purpose of life? Is there anything worth giving myself to? Or should I just look out for myself, care about myself? The story of Scripture, the good news of Jesus is yes. Yes, there is something worth giving yourself to. This is the freedom and the challenge of the gospel, the freedom of friendship. Again, the, the Savior, the, the Lord of all creation calls us friends. But also this incredible challenge of love. Don't lose that in there. Jesus says the greatest love is to lay our lives down for each other. We love and serve and give ourselves away because Jesus, out of his great 
grace and mercy, loved and served and gave himself away. As we get ready for communion here in just a few moments, I wanted to end with a a story about my friend John. John is a, a friend from Boston. We called him Cuban John because he's Cuban and his name's John. <laughs> John, uh, John was born and raised in Miami and uh, for many years was uh, involved in event production. He did lights and sounds for clubs and venues and even went on tour with a couple of, of bands. But that lifestyle, late nights and life on the road and partying all the time, it got to be too much for him and he started to lose a sense of his soul and, uh, and so he kind of hit the reset button on his life and applied to grad school and got into a program at Northeastern University in Boston. His program started in, in January and it only took him a couple of days to begin questioning his life decisions. A guy from Miami in Boston in January, it's pretty shocking in and of itself. But he's also, he's surrounded by students that are younger than him. He's, he's in this weird city, this new city, and it's freezing cold. And he just begins to ask these questions. You know, what, what, did, I, what did I do? <laughs> Why am I here? Have I made a, you know, a huge mistake? And uh, that kind of went on for a couple of weeks, and he started to sink into a real depression. And so this Sunday morning, I think it was like a late February, early March, which, by the way, still bitterly cold in Boston during that time. He's walking the streets of the city. He's asking these questions about if he even wants to go on living. And he sees a sign for our church, which was meeting in a hotel. And so he's like, well, at least it will be warm in there. So he walks in and, uh, you know, sits down at the very back of the auditorium and and sits through worship and and the sermon that morning and then like we do here every Sunday at that church we celebrated communion towards the end of our our time together and a little bit more backstory about John he had had a couple of previous experience uh, experiences in church one of them uh, as a kid he was not allowed to take communion because he hadn't gone through the the membership process and then another one as an adult they knew what he was doing, his, his job and the kinds of people that he hung out with on a regular basis. And so they said, you've got to quit all that, clean up your act, and then you can come to our church and take communion. So he would not had a good experience with communion. We'll just put it that way. And, and he's, he's sitting in the service and he's asking these big, deep questions about life. And, and he just has this sense, I need, to, I need to do this. And the way that we did communion there is people held the elements and, and served it as you came up to the front. So he's in line, and, and he's thinking like the whole time someone's going to tell him, you got to get out of line and go sit down. You don't, you don't get to do this. So even, even to that very moment as he gets up there, he's kind of doing this like, who's going who's gonna to tell me not to be here? But he finally gets there, and, and, and he takes for the first time in his life the bread, representing Jesus' body broken for him for John, and he dips it in that cup of juice, Jesus' blood spilled for him, for John. And he takes and he eats this meal, this very simple but profound meal for the first time in his life, and he experiences this very real 
sense of God's grace and mercy in his life. I had the privilege later to baptize John. And there was this moment, this is one of my favorite, favorite stories of all time. There's this moment a few weeks, maybe months later, where John's just standing in the lobby during, you know, before the service saying hi to people. And this is kind of the way churches are, but somebody doesn't show up. And so he gets tapped on the shoulder, John, you're serving communion today. And in the moment, he's like, okay, whatever, no big deal. And then, you know, we, we sing and there's a sermon and all this stuff. And then John gets to that point where he's up there and he's, now he's holding the body and blood of Jesus. And people start coming up. And as people start coming up, he just is overwhelmed by the moment. And John is, is a big guy, big kind of intimidating looking guy. And in fact, his, his nickname in Miami in his old job was Angry John. So he transforms from Angry John to Cuban John. <laughs> but here's John, this big, this big man, just weeping as people are coming to take communion from him. This, this shift from I'm not allowed to do this to I get to do this and take and eat to now I get to help other people do this. After the service, John was super embarrassed and apologetic and was like, oh, I'm so sorry I cried. Like, oh. And I'm like, don't worry about it. Like, it's okay. It's okay. And I, I told him, I'm not really this clever, but sometimes they say the right thing. I told him, I think that's how we're supposed to do it. I think that's what it's supposed to look like. When we experience and, and know, when we behold the goodness and grace and mercy of God, how else do we respond? but in gratitude and in service. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, this psalm is a gift because it reminds us of our true identity, that you are the master and we are the servants. But we're also incredibly grateful for the truth of the gospel, which is that you no longer call us servants, but friends. Father, I pray for those here this morning who have not yet submitted their life to you, that they would take that step this morning and experience your friendship, the grace and the mercy of being friends with their creator, It's unbelievably good news for us, God. Thank you that you came not to be served, but to serve, that you've given us this example. May we respond in gratitude and in service, not out of guilt or compulsion or trying to win your approval, but simply out of gratitude for what you've done for us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.